Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic, overseeing our TOSIG Phase 1 and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Betty Hamilton, Associate Director of the Blood and Marrow Transplant Program. Betty joined us last year to discuss CAR T-cell therapy, and that episode is still available. She's here today to talk to us about data she presented at the recent American Society of Hematology meeting on preventing graft-versus-host disease. Welcome, Betty. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely. So maybe you can remind us, what's your role here at Cleveland Clinic? So I'm currently the interim director of the blood and marrow transplant program. So I help take care of patients undergoing allogeneic transplant for a variety of blood cancers. Very good. Well, today we're going to talk about graft-versus-host disease. Yes. And some data that you've uh, you presented. So wide range of people that be listening in. So we're going to talk about allogeneic transplants and graft-versus-host. So let's start really basic. Remind us, what is allogeneic transplant. So what allogeneic transplant is, is basically a potentially curative therapy for, again, a variety of blood cancers. So acute leukemias, myelodysplastic syndromes, chronic leukemias. And it's our ability to not only deliver chemotherapy to patients, but basically replace their bone marrow. And by using a donor and a donor's new stem cells, which then become a new immune system, we're basically using that immune system to help then fight against the blood cancer. So it's a therapeutic approach to potentially cure some high-risk blood cancers. Very good. Graft-versus-host. We're going to talk about graft-versus-host disease. What, what exactly is that? Yeah, so that is one of the most common complications of an allogeneic transplant. It's when the donor's immune system can potentially recognize the host or the patient's organs and body as different and foreign. So unlike, for example, a solid organ transplant, like a kidney transplant, it's basically the opposite of rejection. It's when the immune system basically matures and uh, becomes the patient's new blood, but can also recognize organs such as the skin, the gut, eyes, mouth, liver, all as different and foreign. So it almost becomes an inflammatory, almost like an autoimmune disorder. And we'll talk about your your study and how, you know, toxicity is involved and things like that. What been a while since I did my rotation <laughs> through bone marrow transplant. So remind me, what's the current thinking about whether graft versus host, although it has morbidity, is actually a good thing. Yeah, exactly. So I often tell my patients when they come see me for initial consult for a, a bone marrow transplant that a little bit of graft versus host disease is thought to not necessarily be a bad thing because it also indicates that the new blood system or new immune system is strong and active and also fighting against leukemia. So that graft versus leukemia effect is very closely tied to the graft versus host disease. Sort of the side effect of that graft versus leukemia effect is, you know, attacking other organs as well. Now, when we identify a donor, we try to obviously match that donor as best as possible, but it's never a perfect match, nor do we ever want a perfect or identical match because, again, we want that immune system to recognize bad leukemia cells as different and foreign as well. So a little bit of graft-versus-host disease is not necessarily a bad thing, 
but severe forms or a lot of graft-versus-host disease can lead to a lot of complications and be associated with a lot of morbidity and mortality. Let's jump in. Tell me a little bit about the study you reported on. Sure. So we do use a lot of different methods to help prevent graft-versus-host disease. And for actually decades and decades, even when you were on your bone marrow transplant rotations and training, the standard has always been the combination of methotrexate and a calcineurin inhibitor, which is basically an anti-rejection or immunosuppressive medicine, most commonly tacrolimus. Occasionally, we also use cyclosporin, but most commonly, it's this combination of tacrolimus and methotrexate. And so it's been used over the past several decades. It is associated with several toxicities. So primarily that includes um, severe mucositis or mouth sores and throat sores. It can also affect the kidneys and the liver and can be difficult to tolerate. However, the reason why we continue to use it and it's still considered the standard is that despite many trials trying to test different combination of medications, there hasn't necessarily been anything that has shown to be better than tacrolimus methotrexate. Many things have sort of shown similar findings, but you know, every medicine also has their side effects and, and toxicity. So nothing has been necessarily been shown to be better. So for this trial, our goal was to try to find, and, and in general, in, tr in the transplant field, we're always trying to find ways to have the best effect with the lowest toxicity and trying to make our treatments always better tolerated. So the goal of this study was to evaluate a new regimen, still using these drugs that we know are effective. So using tacrolimus, still using methotrexate, but a lower dose of methotrexate. And a third drug called mycophenolate, which is another anti-rejection or immunosuppressive medicine that is also commonly used in transplant. So basically comparing that combination that we know is a little bit better tolerated with the standard doses of methotrexate and tacrolimus. And so you compare regular methotrexate-based regimen, what, what was referred to as a mini-methotrexate regimen, mm -hmm. and what happened? So we took about 100 patients. We randomized them, so nobody got a choice. A computer told us um, which group they would be in. And we found that the patients who got the mini-dose regimen, the, the three-drug regimen, had very similar incidences of graft-versus-host disease, um, no big significant differences, but they had a much better toxicity profile. So they had lower rates of mucositis and severe mucositis, so mouth sores, which led to decrease in use of pain medications, decrease in the length of time that their blood counts were low, so um, faster engraftment, also led to shorter hospitalization days. And there were some trends. Although they didn't necessarily reach statistical significance, there were trends towards lower non-relapse mortality or mortality related to complications of the transplant. We also found that there was lower kidney toxicity, liver toxicities, lower ICU stays as well. And so when we think about, we, we, you mentioned about efficacy and this anti-leukemic effect and things. So since the incidence of graft-versus-host itself was similar, mm -hmm. then you wouldn't expect any difference in mortality or, or effectiveness. Is that safe to say? 
Whenever we do any sort of trial and transplant, and in particular a trial to look at prevention of graft-versus-host disease, all of the things you mentioned are really important endpoints to look at. So we don't just look at graft-versus-host disease. It is, you know, incidence of disease coming back or relapse. So it is incidence of survival, transplant-related mortality, and other things like that. So we did um, look at incidence of relapse, and there was no significant difference. The rates were very similar. We also look at uh, more specific things like the severity of graft-versus-host disease. Um, there are actually, we didn't go into this, but two types of graft-versus-host disease, an acute type which typically happens early on and a chronic type that typically happens later in the course. And although we, again, didn't show any major statistical significant differences in severe acute GVHD, there might have been a little bit of a trend of increase of severe acute GVHD with the mini-dose regimen. Um, but that did not actually seem to translate into transplant-related complications or non-relapse mortality, um, definitely didn't translate into, you know, change in relapse, um, also didn't change any differences in survival as well. And certainly, I guess, on a positive side, if you get faster engraftment and less ICU stays, then I'm guessing things like length of stay probably improved. Yes, exactly. So um, I think it was uh, by a couple days that uh, patients were out of the hospital quicker. Is it, um, now, of course, you mentioned that, you know, patients go into a trial like this and it's kind of the electronic flip of the coin. Mm -hmm. Is there a hesitancy on the part of patients realizing that, you know, graft versus host is one of those things that they're probably worried about going into, into a trial? Was there concern on the patient's part about participating, thinking that maybe they would be at increased risk? I think patients were reassured by the fact that um, all of these drugs have been used very safely and, and commonly in transplant, perhaps not necessarily all in combination or in this specific setting, but these drugs are very common in the transplant field. So they were comfortable knowing that. And also knowing the fact that we can certainly do better. When we talk to them about the toxicities of full-dose methotrexate, the mucositis that we expect, um, and the other toxicities, they're very willing to sort of try something that might improve things. Based on this, have you adopted this as sort of the standard moving forward for most patients? Yeah, that's a great question. So we're in the process of actually evaluating that a little bit more because there have been a lot of advancements in not only treating graft-versus-host disease, but prevention as well. Just recently, there was an FDA approval of a drug called Abatacept in prevention of graft-versus-host disease. And so we're evaluating sort of our practices and sort of the data and literature and all these different settings, but we are moving forward with likely changing our practice to this mini-dose regimen. Is there a thought that there might be certain groups of patients who would benefit more or less from a higher or low-dose methotrexate? Yeah, that's a great point too. So of note, this trial was only done in patients in myeloablative transplants, meaning that it's high-intensity chemotherapy, and that chemotherapy basically completely wipes out the bone marrow. So this type of preparative regimen or myeloablative transplant is typically reserved for younger patients and patients without other medical problems or comorbidities. So certainly, methotrexate is primarily only used in that setting, and so that is the group that we're focusing on. There are different 
chemotherapy and radiation type of preparative regimens as well. And we know that in particular, for example, in patients with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, we use a preparative regimen that includes radiation. And in particular, those patients have very severe mucositis, the combination of methotrexate and radiation. So that's another sort of subgroup that we definitely are looking for um, a, a better regimen and more tolerated regimen. So the point of this was to try to minimize risk for developing graft-versus-host um, disease. And, and you mentioned here a moment ago about maybe better ways to treat it. You might remembering back in my rotation days, it seemed like room to room guessing how much steroid to give people. That was kind of the daily event was how much steroid. Yeah. Uh, what, what are the newer things that are uh, being developed? Yeah. Amazingly, still, steroids are still <laughs> the first line treatment for graft-versus-host disease, both acute and chronic. That being said, as a field, um, we are moving away toward non-steroid approaches just because we know how much steroids can lead to other toxicities as well and other bad side effects, especially long-term steroids. So in the chronic graft-versus-host disease setting, we now have three FDA-approved drugs to treat chronic graft-versus-host disease. That's um, roxolitinib, a drug called belamucidil, and a drug called ibrutinib. Um, in the acute graft-versus-host disease setting, we have one FDA-approved therapy, which is roxolitinib. This is huge for the GVHD world. So as you remember, we really didn't have any therapies that were FDA approved ever. Right. Um, and we've been doing transplants for decades now. And it was it was still very much, you know, how much steroids, you know, just throw a huge dose of steroids at people. Um, and, uh, you know, picking and choosing just based on, you know, preference and whatnot and not necessarily on data on what the next drug to try was. So these are great advancements in the field of graft-versus-host disease to at least have these therapies that are more accessible to patients um, and that have good clinical trial data behind them as well. And so what are the, uh, what are the biggest gaps that remain on the prevention side? You said there's a, a, a new drug that's uh... It's approved. Anything else that looks particularly promising in that area? Yeah, there there is another approach that has gained a lot of um, increasing use, and we also use it. It's called post-transplant cyclophosphamide or post-transplant psi. Now, cyclophosphamide is a chemotherapy drug that's also been around forever, but it was initially used several years ago and has been shown to really be able to prevent graft-versus-host disease pretty effectively, even in mismatched transplants. So has allowed the field to do what we call haploidentical transplants or half-matched transplants. And it's sort of overcome our ability to cross that HLA barrier or the barrier when we match donors. That's become an increasingly effective strategy. We use it also now in fully matched transplants. And again, this is in particular in the setting of reduced intensity transplants. So that that is a less intense chemotherapy, typically reserved for older patients or patients with comorbidities. It hasn't been used as much in the myeloablative setting. So determining really what is the best GVHD prevention approach is one thing. There's currently a Omer Transplant Clinical Trials Network trial that is close to accrual, but is still undergoing follow-up um, that is comparing post-transplant cytoxin with tacrolimus methotrexate in that reduced intensity setting. So that is potentially going to create a new standard of care. 
always trying to balance the graft versus host and graft versus leukemia effect is sort of the holy grail of transplant. So always trying to improve on preventing graft-versus-host disease without affecting graft-versus-leukemia effect and something that's well-tolerated. And then also being able to choose best treatments. Even though we have new therapies that are FDA-approved, you know, having a, a straightforward algorithm or knowing what drug is going to work in what patient and understanding when to sort of start that treatment, they're all sort of unanswered questions or questions that we're trying to still do trials. Around. Yeah, so I guess to that last point, that was what I was going to ask next is, you know, certainly you want as good a match as possible, mm-hmm. but are there any other patient factors or treatment factors or disease factors or anything else that is particularly predictive right now of who's most at risk? Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, the, the probably biggest factor is degree of match. That is now being mitigated by strategies like this post-transplant cytoxin. We also know that the graft source, whether it's straight from the bone marrow from the donor or mobilized with peripheral blood cells called peripheral blood stem cells, we know that peripheral blood stem cells, they're a risk factor for increased chronic graft versus host disease. It is somewhat of an easier stem cell source or an also increasingly used stem cell source. And in particular, because of COVID, that their use has also greatly increased because When you use peripheral blood stem cells, you're able to cryopreserve or freeze those cells for use just to ensure that we have a donor stem cell source. So there are many reasons why we continue to use peripheral blood stem cells, despite the fact that we know it leads to increased chronic graft-versus-host disease. So there are some risk factors that we know of. Very good. Any other other particular areas of excitement in this area? What, What are you looking forward to? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is really continuing to understand the biology of how both acute and chronic graft-versus-host disease. You know, back in the day, it sort of was a a pick and choose and in, in trying to determine what the best treatments and best prevention strategies are. It wasn't always based on sort of understanding how graft-versus-host disease develops. And I think as a field, we're continuing to try to base our clinical trials on the biologic development of of graft-versus-host disease. And we have now more standard guidelines of, you know, grading graft-versus-host disease, how we criteria for response. And so this also allows for more robust and more standard clinical trial design um, to allow for, you know, the development of new drugs and testing on them. That's great. Well, it looks like there uh, have been some big advances since my rotation days. <laughs> so yeah. you've provided some great insights and thanks for being with us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. To make a direct online referral to our Toxic Cancer Institute, Complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org slash cancerpatientreferrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.